Welcome back. I'm Shane McClelland. I'm Lori Gum. And these are the Q Files. For this extra special episode, we've invited a few of our favorite spooky friends to join us in the holiday tradition of telling ghost stories. While most closely associated with Christmas gatherings, sharing ghost stories during the wintertime is a hallowed tradition and folk custom that stretches back centuries, perhaps even before Christmas, to when families would pass the long and cold winter nights with tales of ghosts and goblins near a warm and glowing fire. The tradition was popular in England, but never completely took off in America thanks to those killers of joy, the Puritans, whose hate for anything remotely interesting knew no bounds. That was until Washington Irving gave it a bit of a new life. However, that also coincided with the American interest in this strange Scottish and Irish custom, Halloween, which we more readily adopted as a haunted holiday, much to their chagrin. But for a beautiful period of time, the darker part of the year was bookended by friends and families gathering, communing, and telling scary stories and local legends, real and imagined. This year has been difficult and tumultuous on a level many of us have not before experienced. While we are away from friends and family, this holiday season it is Lori and I's sincerest hope that you can find fellowship with us and our friends in this episode. So gather around, get comfortable, light a fire and make some hot chocolate, maybe add some peppermint vodka to it, and ask your friends to join in listening wherever they are. We begin our holiday haunts Specter Spectacular with Sapphire Sandalo of the podcast Stories with Sapphire. Oh, and you better buckle up for this scary story. The following is an abridged version of a story on the No Sleep subreddit called A Philippine Ghost Story by username Pem Rolino. Growing up in the Philippines provided no shortage of ghost stories and mythical legends. It seems like everyone had a story to tell or knew someone who had. I've had a handful of relatives in my family who claim to have had encounters with a ghost, or multo, as we called them in our native tongue. My family and I had recently taken a trip back to the Philippines. It was long overdue, as I had not seen my relatives and my home country in several years. It was a bit strange to see all my younger cousins grown up. On our first week there, we were on our way back to my aunt's house from a long day of shopping, when the conversation in the car turned to supernatural occurrences. My cousins spoke of strange sightings and experiences they've had, all with varying degrees of believability and silliness. My dad relayed some tales from his younger years about how his group of friends would encounter this and that. He was always ever so dramatic with his storytelling. It was all in good fun, but throughout the whole conversation, my mom remained quiet. She was the hard skeptic type and would always dismiss those stories as silly folklore. However, at that moment, it looked like she had something to say. My curiosity took over, and I finally asked her if she had any ghostly encounters. She looked at me and nodded. Back during her college years, when she was studying to be a nurse, she lived on the campus of a very old school not too far from the city I was born in. Living conditions were pretty rough, and four of them had to share a room half the size of a normal American college dorm. 
On top of that, the campus used to be an infirmary during World War II. Hundreds of soldiers from both sides passed through and died within the walls of that hospital. Residents of the dorms would speak of strange noises in the night. Footsteps, faint echoes, and knocking were heard in certain parts of the building. There were rumors that the place was also a temporary orphanage at one point in time, and that a handful of children had died there. They said you could hear children's laughter in the walls if you listened closely. On more than one occasion, my mom and her roommates would wake up to faint shuffling noises in the room, like someone small was moving about. When they looked around, they wouldn't see anyone. So they dismissed it and went back to sleep. It wouldn't be until the following morning that they saw what looked like footprints on the walls and ceiling. They were the size of a child's. One of her roommates moved out after that. One night, a close friend of my mom was heading back to her room after a late study session. She was wary of the supernatural, so she kept her head down and walked quickly through the halls. As she passed by one of the empty rooms, something caught her eye. That large room used to be a triage area when the place was a hospital. The old, rusted beds were left there abandoned, and the room was used for storage. She said she saw half a dozen men lying on the beds. They looked injured and bandaged, and they wore what looked like the uniform of an American soldier from World War II. She stood frozen in place as she felt the coldest chill she'd ever experienced in her life. Then one of the soldiers sat straight up and slowly turned towards her. That was enough to snap her back to her senses, and she took off running towards her room. When she got to her dorm and told her friends what she saw, the brave ones of the group headed to the room to investigate. When they got there, the beds were empty. Ever the skeptic, my mom didn't put much stock in those stories. That is, until one early morning when she experienced something that challenged her stance and bothers her to this day. In the mornings before classes, my mom would wake up extra early so she can get first dibs on the showers in the community bathrooms. It wasn't too hard, since a lot of the residents had convinced themselves that the place really was haunted and were unwilling to venture out on their own that early. My mom mostly ignored those stories, and she always got to class early. That morning... She did her usual routine, and it went off without a hitch. As she was walking back to her room, she heard it. She said it sounded like whispers. She stopped and turned around. Down the hallway, a figure stood just at the edge of the darkness. The lights weren't in the best condition in that wing, so it was dim. Still, my mom could discern that the figure was dressed like a nun. That didn't make any sense since there were no nuns on campus and the nearest church was several miles away. Staying completely calm, my mom turned and walked away. She quickened her pace and her own footsteps echoed in the empty hall. She strained to hear any other noises but heard none. When she turned right to another hallway, she saw the nun from the corner of her eye. 
it was closer and definitely following her. As she got closer to her dorm, she turned around once more. The nun was at the end of the hall, just as far away from her when she first saw it. The nun stood still, as if she'd been standing there the whole time. My mom quickly reached her door and struggled to unlock it. Daring one more look, she turned to her left, but the nun was gone. Relieved, she turned the lock. As she did, she moved to pick up her stuff and felt an unnaturally cold chill. She slowly looked right, and it was right there. The nun, on the other end of the hall. Except now, she was much closer and fully in the light. On instinct, my mom turned the knob and threw her door open, and that's when the child ran out. A small, kindergarten-aged child ran out of her dorm room, brushed past her leg, and ran towards the nun. The child was laughing innocently as if playing a game of tag. My mom watched as the child ran past the nun and disappeared into another room. After a few moments, the nun turned and followed the child. My mom asked around after that experience and learned that the last time there were children or nuns in the campus was back when it was a temporary orphanage several years ago. They shut it down after a tragic fire killed a dozen children and a few nuns looking after them. She never experienced anything else out of the ordinary after that. After she told that story, we all sat stunned in our seats. My mom had been holding out on me. I was thrilled, but also terrified of what I just heard. I loved these stories, but my imagination, fueled by stuff I've read and scary movies I've watched, would always get the best of me when I'm alone in the dark. It was a sort of interesting paradox. Kind of like how at one point in my childhood, I was fascinated by snakes as animals, but I was deathly afraid of encountering one out in the wild. To be honest, I was still a little bit jealous of my mom that she had such a cool story to tell. I wished at that moment I had my own story. Well, you know what they say about being careful what you wish for? Yeah. Later on in the trip, we visited my uncle who lived a few towns over. There, he lived with his family where he ran a very lucrative farming business. On the way there, we passed a long bridge that went over a steep ravine with a river below. As our car rode along the bridge, I couldn't help but feel a sense of deja vu. It made sense since I traveled over this bridge many times before when I visited my uncle and cousins. However, underneath that feeling was a sense of unadulterated fear and dread. Like something bad had happened here and it somehow directly affected me. A distant memory, screaming to be remembered. As if on cue, my dad pointed out that this bridge was infamous to the surrounding towns and cities because of the White Lady. Now, like the Capre or the Tikbalang, the White Lady is another one of the ubiquitous ghost stories told all around the country. She is perhaps the most well-known since different countries also have their own version. In America, she's usually called the Lady in White. In Spanish culture, she's La Llorona. The basic idea remains the same. 
a ghostly-looking woman dressed in a long white dress and long dark hair stands on the side of isolated roads, waiting to hitch a ride. The scenarios vary, but in the Philippines, if you stopped and gave her a ride, she would quietly enter your back seat. If you don't interact with her, she'll leave you alone, until she disappears from your car some distance later. If you see her on the road and keep driving, she will suddenly appear in your car and attack you. Moral is, it's better to give her a ride than not. When we arrived at my uncle's large house, I couldn't shake the feeling that the bridge had somehow directly affected me. After a delicious dinner and a round of video games with my cousins, I found my uncle out on the balcony having a drink. He offered me a beer since I was finally old enough and I took a seat next to him. Hey Tito, do you remember anything about that bridge right outside of town? He put his drink down and regarded me for a few moments. He cut straight to the chase. You were really young when it happened. I suppose you didn't remember it much. Now I was fully intrigued. I had to know. What exactly happened? His warm smile faded, and he told his tale. As the story went on, the memories began to flood my mind. Memories that I had long since repressed as a defense mechanism. All the details came to me in excruciating clarity, as if it happened just yesterday. By the time he had finished the story, there was no denying it. I had encountered a ghost all those years ago. It was the mid-90s, and I was still living in the Philippines. I was a plucky six-year-old that was all about adventure and exploring. Once or twice a week, I would spend the night at my uncle's farm, back then a small, budding business. The town it was in was smaller then, and fairly remote. I loved that place, because there were so many areas to explore, but only in the daytime. One particular night, I was over at his place, just watching TV. My uncle got a call of a new delivery of chicken feed that needed to be picked up in the next town. At the time, he only had a few farmhands, and they all had the night off. Usually he wouldn't make a supply run this late at night, but he was behind schedule and needed to pick up the supplies or risk losing profit. As he headed out, he asked me if I wanted to tag along. Ever the restless child, I immediately agreed. My uncle had an old Toyota SUV that he used for all his delivery pickups. I sat in the second row, my usual spot, while my uncle slid into the driver's seat. We arrived at the next town, and I helped my uncle load up the supplies. Well, at least as much as a small six-year-old can. On the way back home was when it happened. I was sitting in the back seat, absent-mindedly looking out the window, when I felt the car slow down. We were almost at the bridge, and I noticed that something wasn't right. I was too small to see over the seat and out the windshield, but I could tell that all the lights on the bridge were off. At this point, the car slowed to a crawl. Hey, sport, why don't you lie down and take a little nap, my uncle said from the front. Something in his voice didn't sound right. It sounded like he was scared and was struggling to hide it. No, that's okay. I'm not tired. Please, just do it for me, okay? He sounded stern, but measured. My uncle was usually an easygoing guy, so when he got serious... You knew you should pay attention. 
Um, Okay, I said as I lay down on the seat sideways. I briefly saw my uncle's eyes in the rearview mirror. They showed unmistakable fear. I felt the familiar bump that signaled we were on the bridge. Then the car stopped. Close your eyes, okay? No matter what, keep them closed. Okay. I started to get scared. I didn't know what was happening or why I had to close my eyes. Regardless, I shut them tight. Then, the strangest thing happened. My uncle started to sing. It was a traditional Filipino folk song, and I'd only heard it once before. About a year ago, my aunt and uncle got into a shouting match, as in a things-were-thrown-across-the-room type of shouting match. I was at their house at the time, and my cousins and I stayed in their room, cowering and waiting for the storm to pass. An hour later, my uncle entered the room and apologized for the shouting. He then started singing that song to lull us to sleep. The melody was beautiful, and I'd never known my uncle could sing that well. He never did it again. At least not until that moment when we were on that dark bridge. The song sounded just as beautiful, but I could tell his voice was shaking. His car wasn't that big, but I was a small child, and there was a lot of room in the second row. I was lying down on the seat perpendicular to the windows, trying and hoping for sleep to come. Instead, something else arrived. Click, click. I heard the familiar mechanism of the headlights flashing. All of a sudden, I sensed that I wasn't alone in that second row anymore. My spatial awareness of the car told me that there was someone or something else sitting right next to me. We had gained another passenger. I shut my eyes even tighter as my uncle began to drive. The temperature inside the car became cold. I curled myself into a ball seeking refuge from whatever it was that was now right next to me. I didn't know much about ghosts and supernatural creatures at that age, and though I couldn't see it, something told me that I was in the presence of something not of this world. My uncle finished the song and started over again. I was amazed that he was able to keep his composure. I refused to open my eyes. I could hear her, so uncomfortably close next to me. At first, I heard what sounded like clicking. As it increased in volume, it sounded like stalks of celery being twisted and broken. Crack, 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 crack. It was unnerving. Those sounds weren't normal. They were all around me. We finally crossed over the bridge, but she was still there. I was so scared I could barely move. The car hit a bump which caused me to slide to the side, closer to her. I felt damp cloth against my leg. My breaths became shallow, and I started to cry. I don't know what compelled me to do it, but I opened my eyes for a split second. In that split second, I saw her. A brief flash of white, with stringy damp hair on her head, blacker than night. She was turned away from me. I blinked the tears from my eyes. When I opened them again, the mass of black hair was now right in front of my face. I shut my eyes tight again. After what seemed like an eternity, the car hit a familiar curve on the road that signaled the entrance into our town. I felt that entity come even closer to me. By this time, 
My uncle was silent. No more songs. The air became even colder right next to my face, and I shook, not from the cold, but from terror. Then she spoke, right into my ear. It was a hushed whisper, lower than any whisper I've ever heard. I couldn't make out what she said. It didn't sound threatening or angry. It sounded sad. And then she was gone. I immediately felt the difference. I could no longer feel another presence in the car, and the air went from cold to tropical humid again. I heard my uncle breathe a sigh of relief. I didn't open my eyes until we had reached the safety of the farm. My uncle had to carry me back inside and straight into my bed, and only then did I open my eyes. From what I could recall, we never spoke of that night to anyone, not even each other, ever again. Subsequent trips across the bridge at night never resulted in another white lady sighting, at least not for me. I'd find out later that in the early 80s, a woman was found dead at the bottom of that bridge. People said that she was traveling to the next town and was hoping to catch a ride with any passing vehicles. It was late at night, and she had no family nearby that could give her a ride. No one knows what really happened, but many suspected that it was murder. After my trip back to the Philippines, I couldn't stop thinking about that night at the bridge. How could I forget such an incredible and terrifying experience? I guess it doesn't matter since I remember it now. But there was something else I realized about that night. Something I hadn't remembered before. When I heard her whisper, I thought I only heard unintelligible garble. But that's not true. She did say something. She said, Maraming salamat. Translated to English, that means, Thank you very much. You know, I don't know about you, but I'm still not going to pick up hitchhikers, even if they are mumbling thanks during the ride. Our next story comes from a voice we're sure you'll recognize. Expert storyteller, Columbus legend, and purveyor of all things weird, Bucky Cutright of Booze and Booze. During the winter of 1851, people in Ohio were very much into the spirit of the season, and also the spirits themselves. Just three years earlier, young sisters Kate and Maggie Fox had created a sensation when they claimed that a phantom which haunted their family's Hydesville, New York residence was communicating through a series of raps and knocks. Up until that point, the idea of speaking with the dead was unheard of, but it was a notion that people found very appealing, and before long, folks were gathering in darkened parlors across the nation in hopes of calling forth their deceased loved ones. While the genuine success of these seances on a whole is a bit shaky, several mediums emerged whose ability to produce phenomenon under the scrutiny of skeptics and even while restrained lent a certain degree of credibility to the practice. One of the most unlikely of these star mediums was a poor and illiterate orphan from rural Ohio by the name of Abby Warner. Abby was born sometime around 1834. Both her parents died when she was very young, and with no known relatives to look after her, her survival was dependent upon the goodwill of the small village where she lived. To make matters worse for Abby, one of her cheeks had been eaten away as a result of a mercury-based cure-all of the time which had been administered by one of her well-meaning caregivers. In the winter of 1849, the village took up a collection and 15-year-old Abby was sent to Cleveland to have a series of operations to correct her disfigurement. 
The surgeries took nearly a year, but were deemed a success, and she spent the following winter recovering in that city's poorhouse. It was there that she first heard the sounds. They began as strange, soft knockings that seemed to come from somewhere within her room. She searched, but unable to find a cause, thought it must be the building settling, or some other aspect of the house with which she was not yet familiar. The noises took on a more hefty meaning, however, just a few weeks later, when Abby became the boarder of a kindly widow by the name of Lucy Kellogg. Not long before Abby moved in, Ms. Kellogg had attended her very first seance and was thrilled by the experience. One evening, while some friends were visiting, she and her guest decided to attempt their own spirit circle. They were astounded by their success. No sooner had they taken their seats than a series of knocks were heard, all occurring within the immediate vicinity of Abbey. Presented with the idea that the sounds were supernatural in origin and wanting nothing to do with ghosts, the terrified girl sprang from her chair and ran to the opposite side of the room. The wall behind her erupted in the sounds, and even more frightened, she retreated to the fireplace where the hearth beneath her rang out with unearthly wrappings. The spirits, it seemed, had an affinity for Abby Warner. In time, Abby came to accept her abilities, and by the early summer of 1851 was considered one of the best mediums in the Cleveland area. Not only were the knocks produced in her presence beyond the scope of an ordinary seance, but tables moved, bells would ring of their own accord, and on occasion, the spirits might even take control of Abby's voice and speak through her directly. Perhaps the most remarkable feat was the ability of Abby to enter into an unconscious trance state, where, despite her illiteracy, she would produce written answers to questions posed by seance attendees with both her left and right hands simultaneously all while the third questioner would be responded to through a series of spirit rappings, which emanated from throughout the room. As word of Abby's mediumship circulated, she became increasingly in demand, and during December of 1851 found herself visiting Maslin, Ohio, at the request of a Dr. Abel Underhill. The purpose of this visit was to introduce Dr. Underhill's friends and relatives to the concept of spiritualism, and the two spent several weeks holding seances in homes throughout the region. That Christmas Eve, Dr. Underhill, Abby, and the rest of their entourage were invited to St. Timothy's Episcopal Church to enjoy an evening of choir music and to admire the beauty of the building, which had just been decorated in garlands of fresh evergreen for the holiday. If Dr. Underhill entered the church not aware of the ancient belief that the veil which separates the living from the dead is at its thinnest near the winter solstice, then he was certainly familiar with the concept by the evening's end. This was not to be a silent night. No sooner had the services started than dull, muffled raps echoed throughout the chapel. At first they were too intermittent to justify comment, but then they began to increase in volume and frequency, sometimes occurring in rapid succession, as if to express displeasure with the words being spoken at the pulpit. All eyes fell on Abby, who sat motionless in the pew with her hands in her lap and her feet planted firmly on the floor. Several members of the congregation ran to the basement to see if they could determine the source of the sounds, but their efforts were to no avail. At one point, the reverend, in consternation, paused his sermon and implored that the knocking cease, and for a moment there was silence, then a single thunderous boom. After this, the noises became so persistent and cacophonous that the service could no longer continue. The evening's worship was abruptly halted, and the parishioners were sent away. Following the incident, Abby was arrested for the unlawful disruption of a religious gathering, and spent the remainder of her holiday locked away in a jail cell. 
Her trial began on December 27th, and over the course of two days, 15 witnesses testified that while they believed her responsible for the disturbances, none could detect even the slightest movement on the girl's part during the service, nor could they conclusively declare her as the source of the manifestations. In the absence of any evidence to support the churchgoers' claims, Abby was found innocent and set free on the evening of December 28, 1851. The story of her arrest, trial, and acquittal ripped through the news circuit. And while reports of a poor orphan girl who was persecuted by a church on Christmas Eve did little to elevate the public's opinion of St. Timothy's, they sparked an intense interest in spiritualism, and it was said that there was scarcely a household throughout the state that at week's end had not drawn the parlor curtains and extinguished the candles in hopes of calling forth its own Christmas ghost. Within five years, it was reported that half of the churches in the Western Reserve had closed, and that those which remained open were nearly vacant in favor of spiritualist meetings. All thanks in part to the visit of a hapless teenage girl and her invisible companions to a small town church on Christmas Eve, 1851. You know, a Christmas Eve seance doesn't sound like a bad idea. Maybe next year. Up next is our friend Ryan Sprague of the Somewhere in the Skies podcast. Ryan isn't a fan of ghost stories per se. He deals with other things that go bump in the night. But he's joining us to share a special, personal tale. I am a UFO guy through and through. I usually deal with things seen in the sky, not here on the ground when it comes to the paranormal, but this event kind of opened my eyes to the the world of the supernatural, if you even want to call it that. Uh, something I did not see, but something I felt, and that's kind of where this story starts. It was um, August of 2017. I was in Liverpool, Nova Scotia, and I was going to be speaking at a conference hosted by a very well-known paranormal investigator in the area, Linda Rafus, and uh, Paul Kimball as well, who is very well-known in the paranormal world. He has a television show in Nova Scotia called Haunted, so that should tell you everything right there about Paul. So anyways, these two put together this awesome ghost hunt in Liverpool, Nova Scotia, at the Queens County Museum, a historically haunted place just outside of Halifax, Nova Scotia. And I was with a few of my UFO buddies, and we went on this ghost hunt, kind of just for fun, see what it was all about. I'd never really done anything like that. Um, all I knew about ghost hunting is what I've seen on television, you know, with uh, the bros who want to punch ghosts in the face, or uh, psychic mediums channeling spirits from the dead. And uh, as you can kind of tell, I, uh, I never really took it that seriously until this night, and it completely opened my eyes, my mind, and uh, even my heart to ghosts. So yeah, this uh, this night kind of started like most of these things do. We were going through this dark museum with all our gadgets and gizmos and, uh, you know, the EVP meters and the spirit boxes. And, and you know, I was just having a good time kind of watching everyone around me trying to um, make things more than they actually were as the skeptic I was at the time. But I remember distinctly going into this one room of this old museum called the Activity Room. So this is an area where parents would leave their kids to play and have fun while the parents went around to the museum. 
And uh, we were told that there was the spirit of a young girl who would haunt this room. And I, of course, kind of laughed it off. I'm like, yeah, sure. Okay, well, we're already being led into believing there's a ghost here. So why not? I'll just roll with it. So we go into the activity room. There's maybe like, I don't know, half a dozen of us or so. And Linda Rafuse, the head of this investigation, she brought in a spirit box. And for those of your listeners who aren't aware, I'm sure they are more than I am. Uh, this is a radio frequency transmitter where you can sweep through different frequencies uh, and try to catch things, you know, Uh Within seconds, it sweeps to different frequencies. So you might hear a word here or there, but you're never really supposed to hear anything, you know, smooth and consistent because it is literally sweeping at seconds, milliseconds even. But I will tell you that while we were in this room and we were using this spirit box, we heard a consistent whimpering of a child, like just smooth and it was as if we were on one radio station the whole time, and we weren't. It was very clear that we weren't, yet this whimper was consistent. So that was a little interesting, I, I, I have to admit. Uh, I was compelled at the time, intrigued, but, you know, it could have been anything. There could have been a uh, technical reason that was happening, but the whimper just continued, and Linda seemed very surprised, like... This should not be happening, I'm pretty sure is what she said. So she thought that, okay, this child is clearly sad or scared. Let's let's get down to her level. So we all got on the ground and sat in a circle to, you know, kind of be at this child's level to show them we weren't there to scare them or, or anything like that and that uh, this child can um, just talk to us. So we're all sitting there, and we're sweeping through different frequencies again with the spirit box. And yeah, you know, maybe a word here or two would come through. Nothing really solid to give us an indication that this was literally a spirit communicating with us. Uh, so we turned off the spirit box and just kind of sat there and waited for anything. And I distinctly remember being in a corner of the room, and there were no vents, there were no windows, there was no draft in the room whatsoever. Very static, very uh, just still. But I could feel a cold spot, is what I'm told in the paranormal world of what this was. It was stark freezing in this one spot, right above my head, and I couldn't explain it. But again, I'm kind of running through everything in my head of what it could be. Maybe there was a draft somewhere coming in. I couldn't tell you. But um, I just sat there, quiet, and I was cross-legged, and I just waited. Waited for anything. And to the point where I almost, like, fell asleep in there. It was so, like, peaceful and calm. Uh, but yeah. The next thing I distinctly remember is, as I'm sitting cross-legged, I feel a weight, like in my lap and it wasn't because my legs were tired or anything like that it literally felt like something had sat in my lap in that moment and i remember my my legs and my knees hitting the ground and not only that i remember feeling on the back of my neck what felt like fingers cold fingers grasping around my neck almost like somebody uh the size of a child was sitting in my lap and hugging me 
putting their arms around me. And I didn't know how to react. I kind of shot backwards against the wall behind me, and I was terrified. And not in like, oh my god, it's an evil spirit, but what just happened? It was something I felt. It wasn't something I heard on a spirit box or or smelled or or anything like that or saw. It was literally a weight in my lap, a child putting their hands around my neck and hugging me. They clearly felt comfortable in the room if this were to be a spirit of this young girl, as we were told. And I just remember when I sprung back and hit the wall, I felt the weight go off of my lap, and it felt like a cold rush went past me, like the child ran out of the room. And, you know, that was all interpretation, until I looked in the doorway of the room, where my good buddy Greg Bishop, another UFO researcher, total skeptic, I saw him in the doorway kind of go up against the frame of the door and like put his hands up like something had just ran by him so you know i get up and i go up i'm like greg what made you do that why did you do that and he said i don't know i I felt like something had to get out of the room and he didn't know about what i had just experienced he didn't even know that the communication or anything with the spirit box with the whimpering had occurred he just happened to be walking by and kind of looking in the room at the time and he felt like he had to move for something leaving the room so yeah man that that was it for me um that was my first kind of paranormal experience that really hit me You know, maybe I saw something out of the corner of my eye, or I heard footsteps of something that, you know, shouldn't have been there. I don't know. But this one for me, man, was like what solidified for me that there is definitely energy left over, whether from a spirit or or a place or this sort of stone tape theory we hear of, of things being replayed over and over and over again in an area. Yeah. It was very powerful for me, and it made me have a new appreciation for those who reach out to those on the other side or who investigate these sorts of things. It changed everything I thought I knew. So, you know, while while I continue to search the skies for answers to the UFO phenomenon, it's just so exciting and scary and weird and beautiful to know that there are still mysteries here on our planet that we can look into and uh, could ultimately change everything we once thought we knew. I want to wish you and all of your listeners a very happy holiday season. Please be safe, uh, be healthy, and let's look forward to a new year of new normals and discoveries and everything in between. Keep looking up and keep looking within. Take care. Our next guest is no stranger to spooky stuff. Alex Matsuo is a longtime fixture in the paranormal world and is the host of The Spooky Stuff with Alex Matsuo Podcast. The Bright Light and the Calm Watchdog. I had an unusual visitor on Christmas Day 2008, and I'm pretty sure it wasn't Santa Claus passing by my house in Bloomington, Indiana. The day started in typical fashion, with the opening of gifts around the Christmas tree. I served an early Christmas dinner for family and friends, and everybody departed by 5pm, except my sister and brother-in-law who live with me. 
They were sleeping in a bedroom at the end of the hall with the door open. I went into my bedroom with my dog, Toby, and shut the door securely. I was just dozing off when I heard the latch on my bedroom door open. I waited several seconds for my sister or brother-in-law to ask me whatever they came to say, but there was no other sound. It was almost 7 p.m., so my bedroom was pitch black. I had left lights on in the kitchen and the bathroom, and there were lots of Christmas lights in the living room, so the hallway would have been well lit. I would be able to see whoever was at the door just by lifting my head. I pushed the blankets down and lifted my head from the pillow, but just as I would have been able to see who was in the doorway, an extremely bright light hit me right in the eyes. I shielded my eyes and yelled, Turn out that light! You're blinding me! The light immediately disappeared and I heard the bedroom door latch closed. My bedside light is a touch lamp, so I tapped it on and looked around the bedroom. There was no one in the bedroom except me and Toby. Toby jumped off the bed and went to the door without showing any signs of alarm. At first, I wasn't frightened because Toby is a Dutch Shepherd, well trained to be an excellent watchdog and proven personal protection dog. Since Toby was already up, I decided to go let him outside and see what sister brother-in-law needed. When I went into the hallway, I could see both of them still in bed. I took Toby to the living room to let him outside and there was nobody there either. So who opened my bedroom door and turned a spotlight on my face? Like most people, the thoughts of loved ones are always close at hand during the holiday season. When I first went to lie down, I was thinking how happy I was that my small family had enjoyed a pleasant Christmas but it would have been so much better if my mother and brother had still been alive to share it with us. I would like to think it was my brother's spirit stopping by to say Merry Christmas. I still think of you too. I haven't been able to debunk this strange event or find any kind of rational explanation. I'm half afraid that my heart stopped during my sleep and the light I saw was the bright light people report after near-death experiences. Leave it to me to see the stairway to heaven and ruin my chance at eternal paradise by saying, Turn off that light! I've made a mental note that if I ever see another bright light to clean up my language, just in case. You won't need a spotlight to recognize who is telling our next story. One of my most favorite people, Glory Gum. And now I would like to read one of my favorite children's stories of all time, Herschel and the Hanukkah Goblins by Eric Kimmel. It was the first night of Hanukkah. Herschel of Ostropol was walking down the road. He was tired and hungry. Nonetheless, his step was light. Soon he would reach the next village where bright candles, merry songs, and platters piled high with tasty potato latkes waited for him. But when he arrived, the village was silent and dark. Not a single Hanukkah candle could be seen. Isn't tonight the first night of Hanukkah? Herschel asked the villagers. We don't have Hanukkah, Herschel, one of them answered sadly. No Hanukkah, how can that be? It's because of the goblins. They haunt the old synagogue at the top of the hill. They hate Hanukkah. Whenever we try to light a menorah, the goblins blow out the candles. They break our dreidels. They throw our potato latkes on the floor. Those wicked goblins make our lives miserable all year long, but on Hanukkah it's really bad. Herschel knew he must help the village people. I'm not afraid of goblins, he said. Tell me how to get rid of them. It's not as easy as you think, the rabbi warned. You must spend eight nights in the old synagogue. 
The Hanukkah candles must be lit each night. And on the eighth night, the king of the goblins must light them himself. That is the only way to break their power. I'm not afraid, Rabbi, Herschel said. If I can't outwit the goblins, then my name isn't Herschel of Ostropol. The village wished Herschel good luck. They had no potato latkes to give him, so they packed several hard-boiled eggs for him to eat, along with a big jar of pickles. The rabbi gave Herschel a brass menorah, a package of candles, and a box of matches. Then the villagers said goodbye. Nobody expected to see Herschel again. It was long past sundown by the time Herschel climbed to the top of the hill where the old synagogue stood. The crumbling building was gloomy and dark, and rusty hinges squealed as Herschel opened the door. Herschel shuddered. Well, could he believe that goblins lived here? He put two candles in the menorah and set it on the windowsill. He struck a match and lit the shamash candle. He said the blessings and was about to light the other candle when he heard a voice. Hey, what are you doing? Herschel turned around. Here was a goblin no bigger than a horsefly with a long pointy tail and two little bat's wings hovering in the air. I'm lighting Hanukkah candles, Herschel said. Tonight is the first night of Hanukkah. No, no, it's not. We don't allow Hanukkah. Not around here. Is that so, said Herschel. Who's going to stop me, a little pipsqueak like you? I may be little, but I'm strong, said the goblin. Really? Can you crush rocks in your hand, asked Herschel. The goblin laughed. Crush rocks? You're joking. Nobody's that strong. I am. Watch. Herschel took a hard-boiled egg from his pocket and squeezed it until the yolk and the white ran through his fingers. That's how hard I'm going to squeeze you if you try to stop me from lighting these candles. The little goblin's eyes opened wide, since in the dim light the egg looked exactly like a rock. The little goblin shook in fear. You leave me alone, he squeaked. Gladly, said Herschel if you will let me light my candles in peace. All right, said the goblin. One night won't make a difference, but you better not be here tomorrow. Big scary goblins are coming, much bigger than I, and if they catch you lighting Hanukkah candles, you'll be sorry. We'll see about that, Herschel said to himself. He lit the first candle. On the second night, another goblin appeared. This one was big and fat and waddled like a goose. Herschel was finishing his dinner of pickles and hard-boiled eggs. Have some pickles, he said to the goblin. Pickles? Here, catch. Herschel tossed him a sour pickle. The goblin caught it in his mouth and swallowed it. Mmm, pickles are good. Do you like them? I have plenty in this jar. Take all you want. The greedy goblin grabbed as many pickles as his claws could hold, but when he tried to pull his fist out of the jar, he couldn't. I'm stuck, the goblin shouted. You put a spell on the jar to hold me fast. That's right, Herschel said, laughing, and it's a very powerful spell. 
you came here tonight to stop me from lighting Hanukkah candles. So now, I'm going to light them while you stand with your hand in that jar and watch. How do you like that? No, no, the goblin screamed. I hate Hanukkah. Too bad, you'll just have to get used to it, Herschel said. The blessings and lit the candles. Slowly. Then he sang all his favorite Hanukkah songs. The goblin wailed and carried on so much that Herschel finally decided to let him go. Shall I tell you how to break the spell? Yes, yes, I can't stand it anymore. Let go of the pickles. Your greed is the only spell holding you prisoner. The goblin let go of the pickles. His hand slipped out of the jar easily. How that goblin raged. He had stood with his hands in a pickle jar while Herschel lit Hanukkah candles under his nose. The furious goblin stamped his foot so hard that he shattered into a million pieces. The wind blew them away. The third night came. Herschel felt something watching him as he set the candles in the menorah. Instead of lighting them, he began playing with the dreidel. An hour passed, and Herschel looked up. Sitting across the table was another goblin. This one had a fiery red face and two enormous horns. It's getting late, the goblin said. When are you going to light the candles? Later, there's plenty of time, Herschel spun his dreidel. This is more fun. What are you playing with? the goblin asked. It looks like a top. It's a dreidel. Don't you know about dreidels? No. Too bad. Dreidels are lots of fun. You can also make lots of money if you know how to play. Really? Goblin was interested now. All goblins like money. This one was no exception. How do you play? It's very simple, Herschel said. But you must have gold. That's the first rule. I have plenty. Is this enough? The goblin poured a pile of gold coins onto the table. That's fine, Herschel said. Listen carefully now. This letter is Shin. If it comes up, you give me a handful of gold. This letter is Hay. If it comes up, you give me half your gold. And this is Gimel. If the dreidel falls on this letter, you give me all your gold. You understand? White. There's another letter left. What about this one? That's none. If the dreidel falls on none, I don't give you anything. Ready? Let's play. You go first. The goblin spun the dreidel. The little top whirled round and round. When it fell, the letter on top was shin. Too bad, Herschel said, taking a big handful of the goblin's gold. Try again. Maybe you'll have better luck. The goblin spun the dreidel once more. This time it fell on hay. Eh, this isn't your night, Herschel said, helping himself to half the goblin's gold. One more time, your luck is bound to improve. Once again, the goblin spun. This time the dreidel landed on Gimel. Mm, too bad, Herschel sighed as he took the rest of the goblin's gold. Would you like me to spin? Yes, the goblin grumbled. It was very, he was very unhappy about losing his money. Herschel spun the dreidel. This time the letter Nun was on top. 
oh my, I don't, I don't give you anything. I get to keep all the gold. Say, that was fun. Get some more gold and we'll play again. Yeah, and what about those Annika candles? We'll light them later. There's plenty of time. Not for me, the goblin said. I'm leaving now. I don't like this game. I don't like Hanukkah, and I don't like you. Don't go, Herschel pleaded. I know lots of games. Stay a while. We'll have fun. Goodbye, the goblin spread his wings, swooped out the door, and flew off into the night. Herschel lit the candles all by himself. On the following nights, other goblins came one had six heads, one had three eyes, and all were terrible and fierce. They growled and roared and changed themselves into horrible shapes. They tried to stop Herschel from lighting the Hanukkah candles, but Herschel fooled them all. Finally, the seventh night arrived. Eight tiny candles flickered on the windowsill. Herschel sat back to enjoy their light. Where were the goblins? Had they finally given up? Herschel felt very sleepy, his eyes closed. Suddenly, he sat up. He heard a terrible sound, a voice that sounded like the crackling of bones. Happy Hanukkah, Herschel of Osterbol. Who is it? Who's there? Don't you know who I am, Herschel? Weren't you expecting the King of the Goblins? The voice rose to a hurricane roar. It ripped the shingles from the synagogue roof and shattered the windows. The Hanukkah candles reeled in the savage blast. But they did not go out. You're too early, Herschel shrieked. You're not supposed to come until tomorrow. The great wind died down. Don't worry, Herschel. I am far away. But I have a power to see and speak to you. Enjoy this Hanukkah evening, my friend. It will be your last. Tomorrow night I will come for you. You fooled my slaves, the other goblins. Let me see if you can fool me. Poor Herschel. What was he to do? The king of the goblins was on his way and no power on earth could stop him. Unless, unless... Herschel had an idea. It was a big chance, but he had to take it. It was the only way to save himself and Hanukkah. It was the last night of Hanukkah. Herschel set the candles in the menorah. But instead of placing it on the windowsill, he put the menorah and the box of matches on a small table near the door. There he sat down to wait. Night fell. It grew dark as pitch inside the gloomy old synagogue. Outside the whole world lay cold and silent. Suddenly a great gust ripped the synagogue door from its hinges. The whole building shook. A fearsome voice spoke, Herschel of Ostropol! Did I hear something? It is I, the king of the goblins! Herschel laughed. Don't be silly. You're one of the boys from the village. You're trying to scare me. I am not a boy. I'm the king of the goblins. I'll believe it when I see it. Show yourself to me. Behold, I stand before you. Do you believe me now? Herschel tried not to look. 
Even in the darkness, he could see the outline of a monstrous shape filling the doorway, a figure too horrible to describe. He pretended not to care. It's too dark. I can't see anything. A candlestick and some matches are by the doorway. Why don't you light a few candles and I'll see what you really are? Indeed you shall. A match flared. The shamash candle caught the flame. Herschel's blood turned to water at the awful sight before him, but he did not lose courage. Master of the world, he silently prayed. Thou who created the heavens and the earth and the spirits of the air, stand by me now. Then he addressed the goblin. It's still too dark. What are you afraid of? There are plenty of candles. Why not light them all? A hideous hand took the shamash candle and lit the others one by one. Herschel felt himself growing faint, but he forced himself to look. His eyes grew wider and wider as each candle caught the flame. Six, seven, eight. The king of the goblins stood before him. Now, Herschel, do you know who I am? I know you're not Queen Esther. Yeah, very funny. Enjoy the joke. It will be your last. That's what you think. Be gone, or I'll take a stick to you. How dare you speak to the king of the goblins that way? I'll speak to you any way I please. You have no power. Your spell is broken. See? The menorah is lit. You thought those were ordinary candles you were lighting. They weren't. They were Hanukkah candles. And you lit them yourself. The king of the goblins roared with fury. The earth trembled and a mighty wind arose. It ripped off the synagogue roof again and blew down the walls. It splintered the great timbers and scattered them like matchsticks. Around the menorah, the whirlwind howled, but the candles never flickered. They burned with a clear, steady flame. The king of the goblins had no power over them. The spirit of Hanukkah had triumphed. The great wind vanished as suddenly as it had risen. Herschel rubbed his eyes. The night was as still as before, even though the synagogue was gone. Walls, floors, roof, even the foundation stones had vanished. But the menorah remained, standing tall up on the little table where Herschel had placed it. Herschel waited until the last candle burned out. Then he started down the road that led to the village. I'd better hurry, he thought. I don't want to miss the last night of Hanukkah. But there was no reason to worry. In every window, there stood a menorah with nine gleaming candles to light the way. The whole village was waiting for him. The final story we'll be sharing with you is arguably one of the last great remaining stories from the tradition of Christmas ghost stories, and something we're all familiar with, A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. Laura and I felt that this episode wouldn't be complete without it, and we were absolutely thrilled that Jim Perry from Euphemet agreed to read the passage. After several turns, he sat down again. As he threw his head back in the chair, his glance happened to rest upon a bell, a disused bell that hung in the room and communicated for some purpose now forgotten with the chamber in the highest story of the building. It was with great astonishment, and with a strange, inexplicable dread, 
that as he looked, he saw this bell begin to swing. It swung so softly in the outset that it scarcely made a sound, but soon it rang out loudly, and so did every bell in the house. This might have lasted half a minute, or a minute, but it seemed an hour. The bells ceased as they had begun, together. They were succeeded by a clanking noise, deep down below, as if some person were dragging a heavy chain over the casks in the wine merchant's cellar. Scrooge then remembered to have heard that ghosts in haunted houses were described as dragging chains. The cellar door flew open with a booming sound, and then he heard the noise much louder, on the floors below, then coming up the stairs, then coming straight towards his door. It's humbug still, said Scrooge, I won't believe it. His color changed, though, when, without its pause, it came on through the heavy door and passed into the room before his eyes. Upon its coming in, the dying flame leaped up as though it cried, I know him, Marley's ghost, and fell again. The same face, the very same, Marley in his pigtail, usual waistcoat, tights and boots, the tassels on the later bristling, like his pigtail, and his coat skirts, and the hair upon his head. The chain he drew was clasped about his middle, it was long and wound about him like a tail. And it was made, for Scrooge observed it closely, for cash boxes, keys, padlocks, ledgers, deeds, heavy purses wrought in steel. His body was transparent, so that Scrooge observing him and looking towards his waistcoat could see the two buttons on his coat behind. Scrooge had often heard it said that Marley had no bowels, but he had never believed it until now. No, nor did he believe it even now. Though he looked the phantom through and through and saw it standing before him, though he felt the chilling influence of his death-cold eyes and marked the very texture of the folded kerchief bound about its head and chin, which wrapper he had not observed before, he was still incredulous and fought against his senses. How now, said Scrooge, caustic and cold as ever, what do you want with me? Much, Marley's voice, no doubt about it. Who are you? Ask me who I was. Who were you then, said Scrooge, raising his voice. You're particular for a shade. He was going to say to a shade, but substituted this as more appropriate. In life I was your partner, Jacob Marley. Can you sit down, asked Scrooge, looking doubtfully at him. I can. Do it then. Scrooge asked the question because he didn't know whether a ghost so transparent might find himself in a condition to take a chair, and felt that in the event of it being impossible, it might involve the necessity of an embarrassing explanation. But the ghost sat down on the opposite side of the fireplace, as if he were quite used to it. "'You don't believe in me,' observed the ghost. "'I don't,' said Scrooge. "'What evidence would you have of my reality beyond that of your senses?' "'I don't know,' said Scrooge. Why do you doubt your senses? Because, said Scrooge, a little thing affects me. A slight disorder of the stomach makes them cheats. You may be an undigested bit of beef, a blot of mustard, a crumb of cheese, a fragment of an underdone potato. There's more of gravy than of grave about you, whatever you are. Scrooge was not much in the habit of cracking jokes, nor did he feel in his heart by any means waggish then. The truth is that he tried to be smart as a means of distracting his own attention, keeping down his terror, for the specter's voice disturbed the very marrow in his bones. 
to sit, staring at those fixed glazed eyes in silence for a moment would play, Scrooge felt, the very deuce with him. There was something very awful, too, in the specter being provided with an infernal atmosphere of its own. Scrooge could not feel it himself, but this was clearly the case, for though the ghost sat perfectly motionless, its hair and skirts and tassels were still agitated as by the hot vapor from an oven. You see this toothpick, said Scrooge, returning quickly to the charge for the reason just assigned and wishing, though it were only for a second, to divert the vision's stony gaze from himself. I do, replied the ghost. You are now looking at it, said Scrooge. But I see it, said the ghost, notwithstanding. Well, returned Scrooge, I have but to swallow this, and be for the rest of my days persecuted by a legion of goblins all of my own creation. Humbug, I tell you, humbug. At this the spirit raised a frightful cry, and shook its chain with such a dismal and appalling noise that Scrooge held on tight to his chair to save himself from falling in a swoon. But how much greater was his horror when the phantom taking off the bandage round its head, as if it were too warm to wear indoors, its lower jaw dropped down upon its breast. Scrooge fell upon his knees and clasped his hands before his face. Mercy, he said. Dreadful apparition, why do you trouble me? Man of the worldly mind, replied the ghost, do you believe in me or not? I do, said Scrooge. I must. By why do spirits walk the earth and why do they come to me? It is required, of every man, the ghost returned, that the spirit within him should walk abroad among his fellow men and travel far and wide. And if that spirit goes not forth in life, it is condemned to do so after death. It is doomed to wander through the world. Oh, woe is me, and witness what it cannot share, but might have shared on earth, and turn to happiness. Again, the specter raised a cry and shook its chain and wrung its shadowy hands. You are fettered, said Scrooge, trembling. Tell me why. I wear the chain I forged in life, replied the ghost. I made it, link by link and yard by yard. I girded it on my own free will, and of my own free will I wore it. Is its pattern strange to you? Scrooge trembled more and more. Or would you know, pursued the ghost, the weight and length of the strong coil you bear yourself? It was full as heavy and as long as this, seven Christmas Eves ago. You have labored on it since. It is a ponderous chain. Scrooge glanced about him on the floor in the expectation of finding himself surrounded by some fifty or sixty fathoms of iron cable, but he could see nothing. Jacob, he said, imploringly. Old Jacob Marley, tell me more. Speak comfort to me, Jacob. I have none to give, the ghost replied. It comes from other regions, Ebenezer Scrooge, and is conveyed by other ministers to other kinds of men. Nor can I tell you what I would. A very little more is all permitted to me. I cannot rest. I cannot stay. I cannot linger anywhere. My spirit never walked beyond our counting house. Mark me. In life, my spirit never roved beyond the narrow limits of our money-changing hole and weary journeys lie before me. It was a habit with Scrooge, whenever he became thoughtful to put his hands in his breeches pockets, pondering on what the ghost had said. He did so now, but without lifting up his eyes or getting off his knees. You must have been very slow about it, Jacob, Scrooge observed in a business-like manner. 
though with humility and deference. Slow, the ghost repeated. Seven years dead, mused Scrooge, and traveling all the time. The whole time, said the ghost, no rest, no peace, incessant torture of remorse. You travel fast, said Scrooge. On the wings of the wind, replied the ghost. You might have got over a great quantity of ground in seven years, said Scrooge. The ghost, on hearing this, set up another cry and clanked its chain so hideously in the dead silence of the night that the ward would have been justified in indicting it for a nuisance. Oh, captive bound and double iron, cried the phantom, not to know the ages of incessant labor by immortal creatures, for this earth must pass into eternity before the good of which it is susceptible is all developed. Not to know that any Christian spirit working kindly in its little sphere, whatever it may be, will find its mortal life too short for its vast means of usefulness. Not to know that no space of regret can make amends for one life's opportunity misused. Yes, such was I. Oh, such was I. But you are always a good man of business, Jacob, faltered Scrooge, who now begun to apply this to himself. Business, cried the ghost, wringing its hands again. Mankind was my business, the common welfare was my business, charity, mercy, forbearance, and benevolence were all my business. The dealings of my trade were but a drop of water in the comprehensive ocean of my business. It held up its chain at arm's length, as if that were the cause of all its unavailing grief, and flung it heavily upon the ground again. At this time of the rolling year, the specter said, I suffer most. Why did I walk through crowds of fellow beings with my eyes turned down and never raise them to that blessed star which led the wise men to a poor abode? Were there no poor homes to which its light would have conducted me? Scrooge was very much dismayed to hear the specter going on at this rate and began to quake exceedingly. Hear me, cried the ghost, my time is nearly gone. I will, said Scrooge, but don't be hard upon me. Don't be flowery, Jacob, pray. How is it that I appear before you in a shape that you can see? I may not tell. I have sat invisible beside you many and many a day. It was not an agreeable idea. Scrooge shivered and wiped the perspiration from his brow. That is no light part of my penance, pursued the ghost. I am here tonight to warn you that you have yet a chance and hope of escaping my fate, a chance and hope of my procuring, Ebenezer. You are always a good friend to me, said Scrooge. Thank ye. You will be haunted, resumed the ghost, by three spirits. Scrooge's countenance fell almost as low as the ghost's had done. Is that the chance and hope you mentioned, Jacob? He demanded in a faltering voice. It is. I, I think I'd rather not, said Scrooge. Without their visits, said the ghost, you cannot hope to shun the path I tread. Expect the first tomorrow when the bell tolls one. Couldn't I take them all at once and have it over, Jacob? Hinted Scrooge. Expect the second on the next night at the same hour, the third upon the next night when the last stroke of twelve has ceased to vibrate. Look to see me no more, and look that, for your own sake, you remember what has passed between us. When it had said these words, the specter took its wrapper from the table and bound it round its head as before. Scrooge knew this by the smart sound its teeth made when the jaws were brought together by the bandage. 
He ventured to raise his eyes again and found his supernatural visitor confronting him in an erect attitude, with its chains wound over and about its arm. The apparition walked backward from him, and at every step it took, the window raised itself a little so that when the specter reached it, it was wide open. It beckoned Scrooge to approach, which he did. When they were within two paces of each other, Marley's ghost held up its hand, warning him to come no nearer. Scrooge stopped, not so much in obedience as in surprise and fear, for on the raising of the hand he became sensible of confused noises in the air, incoherent sounds of lamentation and regret, wailings inexpressibly sorrowful and self-accusatory. The specter, after listening for a moment, joined in the mournful dirge and floated out upon the bleak, dark night. Scrooge followed to the window. Desperate in his curiosity, he looked out. The air was filled with phantoms, wandering hither and thither in restless haste and moaning as they went. Every one of them wore chains like Marley's ghost. Some few, they might be guilty governments, were linked together. None were free. Many had been personally known to Scrooge in their lives. He had been quite familiar with one old ghost in a white waistcoat with a monstrous iron safe attached to its ankle who cried piteously at being unable to assist a wretched woman with an infant whom it saw below upon a doorstep. The misery with them all was clearly that they sought to interfere for good in human matters and had lost their power forever. Whether these creatures faded into mist or mist enshrouded them, he could not tell. But they and their spirit voices faded together, and the night became as it had been when he walked home. Scrooge closed the window and examined the door by which the ghost had entered. It was double locked, as he had locked it with his own hands, and the bolts were undisturbed. He tried to say humbug, but stopped at the first syllable, and being from the emotion he had undergone, or the fatigues of the day, or his glimpse of the invisible world, or the dull conversation of the ghost, or the lateness of the hour, much in need of repose went straight to bed without undressing and fell asleep upon the instant. There is a joy to be found in recovering lost or forgotten traditions. And there is a special kind of joy in sharing something truly unique with those close to us, or even just new friends. Holiday ghost stories allow us to be vulnerable and share our fears and the weird stories about creepy things that keep us awake at night or sprinting up basement stairs. It's also a refreshing alternative to the oft-forced yuletide joy and over-commercialization that Christmas time has become. Resurrecting the dead tradition of the Christmas ghost story is a necromatic act of resistance in a world that is desperate to work us all to death if it can't kill us from lack of healthcare in a global pandemic. Spending the holidays, no matter which they are, where you are, or whom you're with, simply sitting. Spending intentional time with people you enjoy and love is what we needed more of even before this year when we were asked to be alone because it was and is dangerous to gather. Before many of us were forced to lose our homes because of the failure to act with compassion by greedy government, so-called leaders. Dickens may not have been the first to spend the winter season telling ghost stories, but Dickensian ghost stories were not just a tale meant to spook, they were teaching moral lessons. 
reaffirming what should be the social contract we were all born having signed. Moral lessons that the tough winter season and shiny hope of a new year were supposed to exemplify and illuminate. William Dean Howells, writer and famous Ohioan, wrote about this cultural loss in 1886 for Harbors. In it, he said, It was well once a year, if not oftener, to remind men by parable of the old simple truths, to teach them that forgiveness and charity and the endeavor for life better and purer than each has lived are the principles upon which alone the world holds together and gets forward. It was well for the comfortable and the refined to be put in mind of the savagery and suffering all round them, and to be taught, as Dickens was always teaching, that certain feelings which grace human nature as tenderness for the sick and helpless, self-sacrifice and generosity, self-respect and manliness and womanliness are the common heritage of the race, the direct gift of heaven, shared equally by the rich and poor. If you are listening to this the day it was released, December 21st, 2020, Today will be the shortest day of the year. We'll have just over nine hours of sunlight here in Ohio. As we seek survival and comfort through these long, cold, and dark nights, inching toward a new year, desperately trying to leave this one behind us, what better way to make it than with friends and family and the stories that remain of those who have gone before us? And if you are listening on the 21st, just remember that it's the winter solstice and that every day from now on, will be a little brighter. This show was created and produced by me, Shane McClelland, and Lori Gum. We'll be taking a little mini break, but we'll have a fantastic new story for you before you know it in the new year. Until next time, friends, be weird, stay curious. These are the Q-Files. <laughs> <laughs>